explored it that way. Lord, if that was what was to be true for us at the end of our days, that our life was just a song that proclaimed your goodness and the truth and your excellencies, then it would be a life well spent, a song that was worth singing. And I pray, God, that you would help us um, in that way. We are in such such need of your help in our lives, not only to do what you call us to do, but to desire to do the things that you call us to do. I mean, it all has to come from you. It all has to be born out of conviction of the word, ministry of the Holy Spirit. As we're proclaiming the good work of the Son for the glory of the Father, the triune God. And as we examine, again, our text from last week, again this week, but from a different light, I pray, God, that you would help marry these two ideas, just solidly weld them together within our thinking and within our hearts, within our affections and our doing of the wonderful blessedness and the glory of what it means to be justified by faith and by faith alone and you being the supplier of that faith. I mean, salvation is all of you. It just, it just is. It's all of you. But also then the privilege that the believer has to prove that faith genuine by our good works. And I pray, God, that you would help us not to be imbalanced in either one of these ways. It's so easy for us to be imbalanced in either one. Rejoicing in justification by faith. Um, on one hand, but then being people that prove that faith to be genuine by, by our good works and them gen being genuine, I pray, God, that um, we would hold both of these things um, well balanced in our thinking, in our understanding, and in our living. And so we ask for your help today and to that end, Lord. For your glory and for our good, we do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are, you can, you can flip your Bibles back to, maybe you don't even need to move any of the bookmark or anything, back to um, Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. We're going to be in this passage again. I have to be honest with you, after I finished last week's sermon, I was just feeling like, like, it, like I just preached half a message and really convicted about that, not to say that there was anything from last week's sermon that I would take back or do different, not at all, but I think that there's a component of what it is, something that I said last week that I want to spend a little bit of time today expanding on a little bit, so hopefully being able to do a little bit more of a full treatment to the passage um, today. Last week's sermon title was Our Only Hope. And I hope that that was clear in talking about Christ being our only hope and what God demands and the perfect righteousness that he gives to us in the law. He upholds those demands. He expects for mankind in order to be right with him, keeps those demands of righteous perfection, but we can't. And that's where Christ comes in and um, being recipients of his grace, we are now covered by the blood of Christ and we receive on our credit hit the perfect righteousness that God demands. God demands the perfect righteousness. Christ met that demand and gives us the credit for it. And so that's justification and justification by faith. And we believe in that. We rejoice in that. Um, so we talked about him being our only hope. This week, the title of our sermon is A Proven Hope. Does we want to examine what real genuine faith, if we're going to talk about being justified by faith and the incredible depth and the riches that come with what that means to be justified by faith, we need to talk about what real saving faith is and how real saving genuine faith will produce good works and that comes into play when we examine Romans chapter 2 verses 6 through 11 as well. And so it's my prayer that we would, we would be balanced in that way. Last week, I made the point that Paul is not teaching justification by works, 
but that got what God requires, as I said, the perfect obedience, as stated in Romans 2, 7, and 10, is what he upholds. And in verses 8 and 9, we see a picture of what he has described already earlier in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, and those are the things that we do. Therefore, we deserve the wrath and the fury. But that Christ is the man from Romans chapter 2, verses 7 through 10, 7 and 10. And by being in Christ, this is what we have for us. And there's something that I said at the end of the sermon, which was, no, even though we're not justified, that Christ is the one who by patience well doing seeks for glory, honor, and immortality and does good, even though Christ is the one who does those things and we are credited to that, I said at the end of last week's sermon that they still serve as good things for us to pursue in our lives. We're not justified by doing those things, we're justified by faith, but being justified by faith, we should want to do those things. And I wanna spend a little bit of time talking about that this morning. It's similar to what Calvin had stated regarding his understanding and the use of the law. He had three uses of the law. The first was that the law shows us God's righteousness and our need for him. You look at this perfect standard of righteousness and morality and purity, and um, it reveals to us what God's standard is, and in looking at that, you go, no way, I can't do that. And that is then the intent is to lead us point us to Christ. But then his third use of the law was that it was also a, a guide for the, the regenerate in order for us to know what good is and to do good. And so it's really on that point we want to talk a little bit of this morning about looking at what it is that God requires, knowing that we're not justified by doing that because we can't be justified by it, but seeing those things as being good things for the regenerate person to do. How does the Christian know what good is? If you're going to set your life out to being, to doing good and to honoring God and glorifying God, right? Like 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Okay, I've, got, I've now got my, my reason and my purpose for why I live. I want to do it all for the glory of God, but but what is glorifying to God? Like, what are the things that I can actually do in my life that will bring him glory? I can't just do whatever I want and go, oh yeah, I'm doing this for the glory of God. There are clearly some things that you cannot do for the glory of God and say it's for the glory of God. Things that are explicitly clear in scriptures being wrong and sinful in the eyes of the Lord. You can't do those things and say, oh, I'm doing it for God's glory. But what are the things that we can do? And it's that I want to focus on and talk a little bit about um, this morning. So justification by faith is important and true, but saving faith is never alone. It produces good works. What leads to a positive judgment on judgment day is not a faith of mental assent, but a faith proven genuine by good works. So we're going to reread Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. And then we're actually going to look at a few verses from Romans chapter 1 to help us um, kind of understand what Paul is saying here. Um, I'm going to begin actually in verse 5, like I did last week, and read 6 through 11 after that. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. We, we, we spoke about that passage last week through the perspective of justification by faith. This week we want to look at it from the perspective of our works being evaluated on judgment day in a way that it proves whether or not our faith is genuine or just mere mental assent. 
because mental assent is not the same as saving faith. And my fear is that there are a lot of people that have this mental assent that God is real, that Jesus is real, or what Jesus has done, that he came, but it is not the same as saving faith. And they think that they are genuinely saved, but their life, their works would say otherwise. And we as believers, we want to be... um, We want to be biblical in our thinking across the board on this. So I want us to turn back actually to Romans chapter 1. I want us to look at verses 5 and 6. And I think this is going to be helpful for us. Right, Paul, if I were to ask you, why did Paul say that he wants to come to Rome? And I would not be, I would not take um, verse 14 and 15 as a wrong answer. Paul would say in chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. His obligation led to this eagerness to preach the gospel. That's why he wants to go to Rome. But before that, let's read with what he says in chapter 1, beginning in verse 5 and in verse 6. Through whom, Jesus, our Lord, which he references in verse 4, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to do what? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. He really, before even verse 14 and 15, and saying that he wants to come and preach the gospel for it, to them, he says earlier that his desire is to come to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And that includes you, church in Rome. I want to bring about, this is his goal, this is his telos, this is what he wants to do. He wants to bring about the obedience of faith. And Paul never, ever in his mind divorces these two realities. Faith and obedience go hand in hand. They go together. They are conjoined twins, if you will. When genuine faith is born, a life of good works is born along with it. It's just the way that it is. If your faith, your re, if your faith is genuine, if you have truly been born again, you are a new creature. I mean, even the thief on the cross had one good work to perform in rebuking the other thief on the cross. You don't know who you're talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. Genuine faith, when it is, when faith is real, it is born with producing good works. And that's what Paul is talking about here. I want to bring about the obedience of faith. I said when we had gone through this, Paul is not talking about the obedience that comes from faith. Right? It's not necessarily faith and then the obedience that follows afterward. What Paul is saying here is that the faith that is born with obedience at the same time. And we talked about how when you, the gospel demands a response. Now, of course, it is God that gives the ability to respond to the gospel. But the scriptures paint it in a picture where it is a response of obedience And God, yes, he provides that obedience, but when genuine faith is there, the obedience to respond is there because the work of the Holy Spirit is active. And so there's, we talked about that a lot when we were going through this passage. Needless to say, is that from the beginning of the Christian walk, two things coexist, faith and obedience. And what we need to do is to keep those two things and balance. What's, what's unfortunate is that we tend to um, try to tear apart what God gives to us in the scriptures as coexisting in perfect harmony. We want to say, oh, I'm justified by faith, therefore, you know, it doesn't really matter how I live my life. Like antinomianism is well and alive today, folks. <laughs> the idea that you can just know Jesus as your Savior and live however you want and not really live under his lordship. It is alive and well, and it is unbiblical. But on the other hand, legalism is alive, is alive and well too. Not that my works contribute to my justification, which is the Catholic view, and that is equally wrong. 
What we need to do is, is do our due diligence in, in keeping these two things balanced together. It's admitted that the response, some of, my, some of our responses in obedience to the Lord are easier than others. I find that there are things that um, I'm much more apt to being obedient to the Lord in. They come easier to me than other things. Other things require a little bit more intentionality, a little bit more work, a little bit more effort. I got I to gotta take thoughts captive. I got to try and align the desires of my heart. I'm trying to get a clear, keep a clear picture of the glory of God, what I'm going to enjoy forever. I'm trying to remind myself to do why I need to do what I should do and, and the benefits of it and the fruitfulness of it and put in some effort to do that. But regardless of whether or not obedience is easy or it's difficult, it's necessary. Obedience is necessary if, if, if faith is genuine. And Paul is clear, his desire is to bring this about among all the nations. So this is not just a, a message that he preaches to the church in Rome. This is part of his message that he preaches everywhere. The gospel message demands a response of obedience to it. And then Paul, he would go on to tell us and give us a picture of what that looks like in 117. 16, right? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, right? The gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, what? The righteous shall live by faith. Now, he doesn't use the word obedience or works here, but to live a life means you're doing things. The righteous live by what? By faith. So even in his mind, this living by faith is never divorced from the things that you do and the way that you actually live. What does your conduct look like and how do you spend your time and how do you spend your money? What is, what is your life actually composed of? What does living look like to you? The righteous live by faith. Paul desired to bring about the obedience of faith. So again, in his mind, we see these two things going together. And what he's talking about in Romans 2, 6 through 11, is the fact that on Judgment Day, the, the faith that one is saying they're living out is actually going to be proven genuine by the works being evaluated. And that is something for us as believers we need to be mindful of. We know again that all of this is born by God, by a work of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 3 tells us that no one can say Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. So even if the, even the confession that Jesus is Lord is born by the Holy Spirit, so certainly any subsequent good work would also be born by the Holy Spirit as well if it is genuine. And that's helpful for us in, in, in motivating us and encouraging us to do the good works, to know that Scripture actually tells us there are good works that have been planned out in advance for us to do. The, the, the Father, the, the triune God has, has set aside good works for us to do, for us to walk in. The Spirit of God is in our lives to motivate us to do those things and to help us actually carry those things out. And it's all born out of a heart that's been regenerated and converted to, to know Him and to love Him and to want to pursue Him and to seek His glory over, it, over all things. Does your life actually prove, you've got this, if you do, if you have this verbal confession Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. I love him. I'm saved by faith through grace. Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, glory of God alone through the scripture alone. Like all those solas. Yes, like I'm, I'm there. Like I'm sold. I'm, I'm, I'm all about those things. But also are we all about everything that the Bible has to say? As it pertains to things like works and why do you do what you do to bring glory to God. I want us to look at a few passages this morning that I think are helpful for us in this way, thinking along these lines. And one of them was what Christian read this morning for us in our scripture reading. If you can turn to Matthew chapter 7, I want to look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 27. 
Because what's interesting here is that even though we may have these, you know, these, these breaks with these titles in our Bibles, this is really just one teaching of Jesus, and he's evaluating the relationship of what genuine faith in works looks like. He would begin in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, as Christian read for us this morning, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly ravenous wolves, right? There's a distinction. Something is present on the outside that's not present on the inside. They're in sheep's clothing, but inside they're ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, right? Sometimes this takes a little bit of time. You can't always tell that it's a wolf in sheep's clothing by first glance. Some wolves are really good at looking like sheep. But he would go on to say that we will recognize them by their fruits. And then he uses this picture, which is easy for us to grasp. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? We went over this passage earlier this week with my kids. I mean, this is like such an easy thing to grasp. I'm like, can you, gra- can you get grapes out of thorn bushes? And the kids are like, no, that's ridiculous. That's exactly the point. Can grapes be gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No. So every tree, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. But then listen to what he goes on to say. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, right? He's just just said the outward works are to be evaluated. And a tree, you will know the type of tree it is by the fruit that it gives off. Outward works help indicate what type of tree a person is. But then he goes and listen to what he says in 21 through 23. But not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, right, they have this outward confession, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? What are they pointing to? Their outward works, which according to a tree being known by its fruit, would make sense. But the response to these people is, then, he, I, then I, will I declare to them, I never, and then will I declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. A tree is known by its fruit, by its works. Then these people come on judgment day, and they're saying, look at our works. And he's saying, mm-mm. You're lawless. You're, you're, you're still diseased on the inside. Verse 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who has built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. The thing, the way that you live your life reveals the type of tree that you are, the fruit that you bear. But there are many people running around that are just pointing to the outward. But inwardly, they're still lawless people. They're transgressors against the Lord. What it is that they are doing is not motivated by faith. There's some other ulterior motive, and there could be a lot of those. But to them, it doesn't lead to a positive judgment on Judgment Day. Not because they didn't do all this stuff. Man, there's going to be, there will be people on Judgment Day that are going to bring more stuff to the table than anybody in this room. And yet it won't amount to anything because they're still people of lawlessness. 
they're not justified by faith that leads to their works. They're trying to be justified by their works and what they're doing. And, and, and Jesus can see right through it. And he won't have any part of it. What uh, Matthew is teaching us there and that external works are only of value if they come from a heart of faith is what James makes explicitly clear in James chapter 2. If you turn to James chapter 2, beginning in verse, verse 14, James is combating really this mental ascent type of faith with, against a real faith born with works animating further works. James chapter 2, verse 14, he would read, beginning in verse 14, James would teach this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? Right? In Matthew, these people, they say they they have all these works, but they don't have faith. James is saying, well, what, if, what about all these people that say they have faith, but they don't have any works? Can that faith really save them? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, it does not, if it does not have works, is dead. Not, and by him referring to faith as being dead, he is, referring, he is not referring to a saving faith that is dead. He is referring to a faith that is just pure mental assent. It sees a need, has the opportunity to perform a good work, born out of faith, and doesn't do it. Simply says to the person who's hungry and cold, man, I hope someone comes along and gives you some food and a jacket and keeps going on their way. And he presses this point even further, beginning in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And that's the key, verse 19. Mental assent. The demons believe. They know that God is real. There's no doubt in their mind about the, the legitimacy and the reality of God in the mind of the demons. And yet, that is not, that mental assent and that knowledge is not enough to save them. They do not perform good works. They do not live a life of good works to the God that they know is real because they are lacking what is essential to genuine good works, and that is a saving faith. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And then he gives us two examples, and I think this is helpful for us as it pertains to what we're talking about in Romans. It's interesting that Paul gives two, or excuse me, James gives two examples, a Jew and a Gentile. And what has he said in Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11? God shows no partiality. Judgment's going to be equal for the Jew and for the Gentile. And he's going to, this theme is going to continue on throughout the book of Romans, how he is absolutely breaking down this argument in the minds of the Jews that they're somehow better off or they're special in God's eyes versus other peoples of the world. And James reinforces this here by giving us a Jewish example and a Gentile example, the first being Abraham the Jew. Was not Abraham our faith justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith, his faith, was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the Gentile example, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James is, is pressing home the point that mere knowledge and mental assent is not saving faith. Saving faith 
has good works. And it's always been that way. We saw it in Abraham. We saw it in Rahab. What's interesting is that you go, if you go back and you read Rahab's story in Joshua chapter 2, you would see that the word faith is not mentioned one time. Just the actions of what she does, hiding the spies, her, her confession, we know, like our heart, everyone, every, the heart of every single person in this city of Jericho has melted because we know that your God, and, um, who he is, and we know what he has done in bringing you out of slavery in Egypt, across the Red Sea, and what he's done thus far. And she's the only one that has the wits about her to go, we're done for, but I'll hide you, and when your army comes, just don't destroy me and my family, and you'll know this is my room because I'm gonna hang the scarlet cord down. What's she, nothing in Joshua 2 indicates to us that what she was doing was being animated by faith. You could read that and go, she just wants to save her own skin, which I wouldn't blame her. Mama didn't raise no fool. I know who you guys are. I know what's coming. But James gives us a behind-the-scene look that what she was doing was actually animated by, by faith. And that's the reason why she did what she did. What's interesting is that she's also actually included in Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5 mentions Rahab, and it's the way that it states it there is it's going through the genealogy and it says, that Rahab. As if to say, if you're familiar with your Old Testament and you're reading through this genealogy and you come across this name Rahab, just want to let you know it's not a different Rahab. It's that Rahab, who was the, the grandmother of Boaz. It's a pretty significant part of the re redemptive story, if you know who Boaz is and where David comes from. He uses, James uses this example, the prostitute, Matthew's genealogy, that Rahab, faith was at work, animating their works. And so we see from both of these examples, both in Matthew and in James, what real saving faith looks like in the work that it produces. We also have an example of, of the opposite in Acts chapter 8. Turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 8. And I want us to look at an example of Someone who makes a confession. Scripture says that they believe and they're even baptized. But then the, as the narrative goes on, it begins to reveal to us that this belief was not true saving faith. They were baptized without true saving faith. And Peter sees it and confronts Simon the magician in it. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 9 there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And again, this is where we pick up with Simon. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And then listen to Peter's rebuke. 
And Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of the wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And what's Simon's response? And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And when they testified and spoke in the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Here you have an example of Simon the magician. Sees the miracles, the power, the Holy Spirit at work through Philip. He believes. He gets baptized. Continues to follow around Philip around. Peter and John come. And he's like, man, give me that power of the Holy Spirit that whoever I lay my hands on can receive the Holy Spirit too. And Peter can see right through him. He has, some, uh, he has some mental assent. That's why the scriptures say that he believed. Even to go as so far as being baptized. And baptism is supposed to be this wonderful, clear, public proclamation of an inward change that has taken place. I'm now in the covenant of grace. I'm now in the new covenant by my, by my faith in Christ and him justifying me by that faith. And this is a work of outward display and public profession. But i got to tell you, not everybody who is baptized has truly been born again. The only thing that saves us is our faith and justification by faith in the blood of Christ and what he's done. There are a lot of people that have this mental ascent. And Peter he digs out what's going on in Simon's mind. Verses 18 and 19, he has this belief, not really in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he has this belief in power. Verse 20 shows us that he has this belief in money. He sought the, the power of the Holy Spirit by purchasing it with money. He has a belief that exists without true heart change. We see in verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. You don't have anything to do with this. Why? For your heart is not right before God. He has a pagan belief. Verse 22, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. He has a belief that's bound up with sin. Verse 23, I see that you are in the gall of bitterness. Re literally, what's excreting out of you is this bitterness, this unbelief, the bond of iniquity. And then I think probably what's most telling about this whole interaction is Simon's response to Peter. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Who does he ask to go to God for him? Peter. Why would you ask Peter? Why would I ask you to pray for me that none of this judgment might come upon me? If I'm truly justified by faith and converted, I could go to the Father myself. He doesn't understand the work of Christ, the mediating work of Christ. Yes, you need someone to go to the Father for you, but it's not Peter, and it's not Paul, and it's not your spouse. And it's not your pastor. It's not anybody. There is one mediator between God and man. And it is the man, Jesus Christ. That is it. He asks Peter to go to God for him because he doesn't understand the work of Christ. And he had heard the gospel preached. That's why he believed. That's why he got baptized. He had this mental ascent. He heard the gospel. And somehow Jesus was completely left out of it in his own mind. I firmly believe that the gospel that Philip preached was the, was the right gospel. It's not like Philip happened to leave 
you know, Jesus out of his gospel message. That's why Simon didn't really fully get it. No, Simon missed what the gospel is all about. The person that exists in the middle of it. The person that, that, that makes the gospel good news. Christ. Peter, you go for me to the Lord. Because he doesn't understand that Christ has mental assent without true conversion. We turn back to Romans chapter 2, kind of where all this is birthed from. He says in verse 7, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Jesus had taught his disciples let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When he says in Romans 2, 7, those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Whose glory? Whose honor? Whose immortality? God's. Not ours not yours, even if you are in Christ. I'm not out there telling people about my glory, my honor, immortality. I've got like none of all of those. But you know who is infinite in them all? God. And he tell, Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 5, 16, I want you to be devoted to good works. That when they, people see your good works, they give glory to God, who is in heaven. That's going to be, I mean, your motivation for why you do your good works is going to come into play at that point. If you're doing what you're doing, even in Christian ministry, even as a believer, and you're doing what you're doing, not for the glory of God, but for your own glory, your own recognition, your own applaud and praise, good job, you think that's going to be, you think the Lord's going to, be favorable in that? That's going to be accounted as being well done, good and faithful servant. You told everyone it was for my glory, but it was really for yours. Awesome job. No, those things that are truly done for the glory of God, that result in God truly being glorified, those are the good things that every believer should be about. I think of I read, I try and read lots of Christian biographies, most of them on missionaries. But if I finish reading any of those biographies and I go, man, Hudson Taylor was incredible. Adoniram Judson, he was amazing. Joni Erickson taught him, what a wonderful woman. If I walk away from reading any of those, if I walk away from the Bible going, oh man, David was incredible. Paul was, Peter, oh my gosh, these guys are incredible. I want to be like them. I want to be like David Brainerd. I want to be like Amy Carmichael. I want to be, you've missed the point. Like all of those people, like those are just people. Do you know who is actually doing all those things? Like God, he just chose by his sovereign will to pull people out in particular periods of time and saying, you're going to be my instrument of performing good works for my glory. Every single story that we read in scripture, every single story that you read from anybody that's ever existed in church history, that has ever done anything noteworthy of talking about, should exist for walking away from it and saying, what an incredible God we serve. You walk away from this sermon, the only, the thing that you should be saying is, what an incredibly amazing God it is that we have. It's the purpose of magnifying him, his name. God, he, scripture says that he exalted above all things his name and his word. 
And each one of it, that's the reason why we're here, is to, for the exaltation of God. That's the reason why we sing. It's a, a way to express our love and exaltation for God. And that's the reason why we serve in church ministry. It's the reason why we do good out in the world, for the glory of God. There's no other, there's no better reason for doing anything. Romans 2, 6 through 11 teaches us justification by faith, but it also teaches us that genuine faith will produce good works, and every tree will be revealed for what it truly is. A couple things to consider. Consider the works that you do. Why do you do them? You serve and ministry at this church. Why do you do it? If you're active in the community, why? If you're trying to be a light at your job, why? Why do you, why do, you do those things? Why do you... Do you, are you pursuing really the glory of God in your own life? Are you also, are you pursuing true holiness to be like Christ? Do you do the things that will actually help contribute to making you more like Jesus? Repentance, confession, prayer, scripture reading, doing the things that actually he calls us to do. Are we really actually pursuing holiness? Are we seeking to glorify him by what we do? What needs to be done in your life? What needs to be undone in your life? I mean, truly, like, if you're saying, okay, I want to live for the glory of God, that means you actually have to, like, do things, make decisions, what do I need to do? What do I need to undo? What are the things that I've been doing that I'm, they're not right? I, I can't do this anymore. I'm, I'm so always so encouraged every time I get a chance to meet with people one-on-one. We're having conversations like this, and I get to hear in real practical ways in people's lives, how are they doing this? How are they applying and living out? What's the good that they're doing and why they're doing it? And you watch God changing people's lives, and it's, it's incredible. Are we even zealous for good works? Good works here in the church. You know, there's ministries here that are lacking opportunities to serve. This would be like, if, if this is your home, North Hills, and you're not serving anywhere, we got needs, perform a good work, I'm just saying, um, why do you do what you do out there, all of us in the world? Not only are there opportunities to serve within the body, but are you serving outside wherever God has placed you, in your neighborhoods, in your jobs, with those that God has put into your life? Are you committed to doing good and modeling love of Christ to them? How often do you actually just rejoice in the fact that you have been given such a rich faith that produces God-glorifying works. And just rejoice in the fact that you have this incredible richness of salvation in Christ that's helpful in being motivated to putting the next foot in front of the other, being committed to living a life of good works for the Lord. I'm I'm going to close before we go into communion. Many of you have probably heard this poem before. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but a couple lines. It was written by C.T. Studd. And I think it was helpful. It's helpful for me. Hopefully it'll be helpful for you. It says this. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way. Bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. 
Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ shall last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, t'was worth it all. Only one life, t'will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. As we prepare to take communion together today, thinking about, um, specifically as we do this, our eyes are drawn to the work of Christ. It's why this is an opportunity for worship. It's why this is an opportunity for rejoicing. That our lives are found in Christ and we're justified by faith and we get to partake of this wonderful privilege with, with joy and humility. But also, too, it's a time of evaluation, confession, and coming before the Lord in honesty to, to confess the things that he already knows and sees and to receive his his grace to help us. Communion time is a means of grace that God gives to us to come before him, to receive once again the forgiveness, the assurance of the pardon that he offers to us as we lay our burdens, our weaknesses, our sins down before him. And we're once again basking in the steadfast love and mercy of God who is for us. And so if you're visiting today and you're a believer and you know Christ, by faith, by faith alone, then you're invited to partake of this time with us. But if you don't know Christ and you're standing upon some sort of merit or you've come to the conclusion that all it is is my, my faith in Christ is just this mere mental assent, then don't partake of communion, but consider and pray and come to him and find that he won't cast out any who come to him by faith. So the elements are on the back table. You can grab one of each and return back to your seat. Have some time of personal prayer and then we'll partake of communion together here.